If you want to know how to create like the greats, let's break it down. Welcome to Create Like the Greats, a podcast where we take you into the inner workings of how some of the greatest creators of all time did or do what they do. I'm Ross Simmons, the founder of Foundation, but today we are going to be diving into one of the strategies, techniques, and habits of one of the greatest creators of all time. The goal? Simple. I want you to be able to get a few lessons and insights that you can apply into your own world, into your own life. No matter if you're a musician, a marketer, an entrepreneur, a creator, or a business person in general, no matter what your background is, I think you'll be able to get something from this episode that you can apply to your life to think more creatively, but also create something great. Today, we're going to be diving into the history and the story behind someone who has had seven Grammys, 33 Grammy nominations, one Oscar, seven Brit Awards, one Golden Globe, and a career that puts them in a tier of creative professionalism that many aspire for, but very rarely will ever actually reach. A multi-instrumentalist and a pioneer in sound engineering, today we're going to be diving into the wonderful world of Prince. Prince shaped the sound of modern pop music by combining elements from different genres, from rock to funk to synth pop, and so much more. His impact on music is undeniable, as he was one of the most influential artists of all time, with over 100 million records sold worldwide. Prince's influence does not limit and get restricted to exclusively music. Whether it's in film, whether it's in art, whether it's in creativity or culture, there is no question that the artist... Prince has had a massive impact on society at large. His use of technology and special effects to enhance his live performances have been copied by many artists who even perform still today, proving his lasting influence on the industry. So join me as I dive into the history, the creativity, and the journey of Prince. I want to start this episode with a sound clip from someone who actually knew Prince, Dr. Susan Rogers. Dr. Susan Rogers is a professor, a neuroscientist, and a sound engineer, but not just any sound engineer. Susan was Prince's staff engineer during Prince's commercial peak and worked on albums like Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Sign of the Times, and The Black Album. But when she shared a little tidbit about Prince, a disclaimer, something that I thought was worth remembering, I wanted it to be something that we could start this off with, something that I think even you will be able to remember And keep in mind, as you listen to this entire episode, let's jump into it. Let's start by establishing that Prince was no mere mortal. And um, I'll give you an anecdote. Um, An engineer named Dylan Dresdow, who worked with Prince in the 2000s, was on a panel with me, and we were asked these questions, and he said something I'll never forget. He said, after you worked with Prince, you had to unlearn Prince. So I don't want any young record maker out there listening to think that what I'm about to describe is how it's done by most people. It's not. Folks, you are in for a treat today because we dive deep into this dialogue that I have with Susan as well as I, while I learn a ton about Prince and the ways in which he worked. But also, I will be diving into the background, the history the rise, and what habits, behaviors allowed Prince to create so much. How was Prince able to achieve so much? What was the process behind his creativity? And how did Prince consistently create a career that was great? Creative genius. Those are two words that you would use to describe a handful of people. And no matter what you think of Prince's music, no matter what you think of Prince's legacy and career, I would say you can't dispute that Prince was 
a creative genius. The moment I walked into Paisley Park, probably four or three years ago, for the first time, and I walked in and experienced Prince's lifestyle, I quickly realized that Prince truly was a creative genius. The results are there to prove it, folks. An Oscar, seven Grammys, 33 nominations, the Brit Awards, the Golden Globes, Prince's Purple Rain era just shaking the foundations of the world. The success being measured not only by Billboard charts, but also by his award cabinet, which is filled all through Paisley Park Studios, not just with Prince's awards, but also with the artists that Prince performed and created with and for and as. Now, the question is, how is Prince able to achieve all that? Was there some magical process that Prince had unlocked in their creativity? How did he create something so great? How did he leave such a massive impact on culture, the creativity, the industry, and even his local community? In this episode, we're going to start by examining the process, the people, the systems, and experiences involved in creating Prince's work as an artist, the individuals that helped him along the way. And one of the best ways to start is definitely with another clip from a combo with Dr. Susan Rogers, what she had to share about her experience working with Prince. So I'd usually get a call either from him or for someone on his staff in the morning telling me to come in to the studio. It would usually wake me up because I'd usually only have a few hours of sleep, but get that phone call. <laughs> you get the, the phone would ring and you pick up the phone and you'd hear that deep voice of his say, ready? Or sometimes it would be, Susan, can you come in? And you, you, you always say yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, be right there, boss. Be right there. And you just get a fast shower and you get down to the studio. So often I'd race down to the studio and he wasn't there yet, but there'd be a note on the console that says, uh, can you set up this, that, and the other thing? This is the instrumentation I need. Now, what he meant by that was, if you could just please route the signal for every one of these instruments so that he could do what he loved to do best. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with your customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's kind of like trying to remember the name of the guy that you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Was it Don? Was it John or Sean? Who knows, right? It's like that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution program, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that helps handle frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps your reps anticipate customers' needs. And a full 360 view of every customer so you can go to market and your go-to-market team can have a pulse on the accounts before you try to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale, support, drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service, happier customers at every single stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more with your customers today. One phrase there that I think Susan mentioned that I don't want you to feel should be overglimpsed and I don't feel should be overshadowed is this idea of hyper creativity. It's the idea of being a hyper creative. So let me introduce you to this idea of what it means to be a hyper-creative through the words of Dr. Susan Rogers. When I did a little bit of research into creativity, I learned about a couple of circuits in the brain that have to open themselves up to allow creative ideas to flow. When we very first get inspired, the first moment of creativity, you know, your brain is wandering. In fact, mind wandering is the best precursor 
for a creative thought and we mind wander in the shower or taking the dog for a walk or uh, when, when we're idling, sometimes driving in our car, we turn the radio off. We just let our minds go where they, where they it wants to go. And if you let it off its leash and you let it wander, sometimes it'll investigate something and it'll go, yeah, yes, that's a good idea. I could do that. Now, when that happens, there's a little circuit on the right side, kind of the right back called the precuneus. And that little guy says, all right, then let's go. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. So that's where art originates. And that precuneus starts reaching out to other areas and it starts opening its little gates so that you can allow your creative ideas to flow. So if I were to do this, what would I need to do? And you get enough original thought going on in there and the precuneus passes the ball to another circuit, also on the right-hand side, that uh, is the craft part. And that circuit says, all right, then let's go. First, we need to build this, and then we need to build that, and then we need to we need this piece of gear. And here's the practical method for making this thing come into being. Uh, in folks who are hyper-creative, their precunius and that other little circuit have uh, a couple of faulty gates that you can think of as leaky faucets. Now, our brain is in inhibitory mode nearly all the time, with 89 billion neurons up there, at any given moment, a human could say or do anything. But they don't. They choose from an appropriate set of actions and words. And all the rest of the brain just keeps its little brakes on. Um, so inhibition is something that the brain naturally does. But if you're a little precunious and the right temporal parietal junction, have faulty breaks. What that means is your creative ideas just keep coming and coming and coming. So as you're passing the ball from art to craft, the new art keeps coming. Now, the precunius is tasked with separating relevant from irrelevant information. So if I've decided that, I don't know, I, I need to design something, I'm terrible at this, but suppose I had to design a logo or some stupid thing like that, I'd have to open up that precunius and think, Oh, what would it be? What would it look like? And as soon as I get a single good idea that I think is a good idea, I'd say, okay, great. Shut the gate, move over to craft, and now start figuring out how to design this thing. But for folks who are hyper-creative, it just stays open. So uh, Prince seemed obviously a hyper-creative because of um, that tendency of his to just have songs coming and coming and coming. We needed to work so fast because he often had another song in the queue, just waiting to get out. The next circuit is responsible for uh, revisions, being open, being open-minded to, to rethinking something, which Prince would also do on occasion, not a lot, but he'd do it on occasion. And that second circuit is so strong in the in the craft modality that that second circuit can is 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 not it doesn't have a problem with saying all right I, I want to try it like this and now I want to change and I want to try it like that and I want to try it like a, a third way the only other person I've known in the music business uh, I think has a couple of faulty circuits in both of those structures cuz you'd be getting ready to hit record on the stereo tape machine and print a mix and he'd go wait the ideas just kept coming and coming and coming. He's one of the most creative people I know.
try to create. Prince told me that day in Melbourne. I want to tell people to create. Just start by creating your day, then create your life. That is a quote from author Dan Pippenbrig. It was something that Prince said to him, and I thought it would be powerful to share in this episode on Prince with this sentiment. As I began working on this episode, it was almost as if there was a sort of creative inception, if you will. But I figured, let's start at the beginning. From a troubled childhood to becoming the high priest of pop, Prince's success story is among one of the most inspiring in history. But before I get into most of the well-known parts, I want us to go back into time, take a look at his early life and the experiences that shaped Prince. Prince Rogers Nelson was born to African-American musician John Nelson and Italian-American singer Maddie Della Baker in 1958. Unfortunately, his parents separated before he knew much about life, and after the split, he was raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota by his dad, who named him after the jazz band he played in, the Prince Rogers Trio. Growing up, he was ridiculed for being short, skinny kid from a broken home who wore these outlandish outfits. And as if bullies weren't enough, it turned out that Prince also had epilepsy. Now, Despite the chaos in Prince's life, his father was determined to ignite flames of music within him. He encouraged his son in a musical way from a very young age. And the legend has it that Prince wrote his first song when he was just seven. His father brought him, bought him his first guitar, which he quickly was able to learn how to play along with pianos and drums and so much more. And the rumor has it, in the end, people said that he could play up to 27 instruments. At first glance, you read this, you hear this, and you might think, wow, Prince was set up for success, right? But his childhood wasn't all sugar plums and lollipops. Prince's craft was something he began honing when he was a child. It's publicly well established that he had an abusive childhood. Uh, That kid would just practice, practice playing like a fiend because he needed to escape. You see, Prince was creatively different, and everyone around him could see it. He started his career at age 14 when he joined the band Grand Central, and at 19, he became Warner Brothers' youngest ever signing the contract that allowed Prince to almost have complete artistic control, which is unheard of, of his music. And in no time, he made a name for himself as a prenaturally talented performer and songwriter. So with all of these promising potentials, it was obvious that Prince would go on to do great things, and that is exactly what Prince did. Now, to a casual observer, Prince's background in music might look like the big factor that set him up for success. But on a more observant look, you would come to realize that his success and creativity wasn't entirely foundational. In fact, it was more of what he did with the flames of music that were ignited into him. He fanned the embers and of these flames to the point where his creativity became overwhelming. And part of what Prince did was to create for himself a creative haven. Constantly, Prince was creating stories for himself to believe and truly understand what he could become. He spoke positively to himself time and time again, and he surrounded himself with creative professionals that would push him to be great. And everyone that he worked with also strived to be great. Prince had an electricity and an energy around him that everyone could see within the matter of minutes, within the matter of seconds, spending any time with him. Prince was committed to the craft, and Prince spent time and time and time, again, working religiously on exactly 
that, his craft. As you continue to watch Prince's career, he eventually created a two-story atrium, Paisley Park, which became his home, his studio, and ultimately a creative haven where he was able to nurture that creative talent and turn his career into an entire new level of expertise, of legacy, and brilliance. Now, aesthetic aside, the air inside of Paisley Park is truly different. And what I mean by that is you just walk in and you can sense a bit of an aura around you by looking at the designs, the aesthetic, the visuals, the way in which the people interact with you there. Everything about it is special. It's a magical place. It is a truly magical place. There's also a bit of energy that comes from going into the various rooms and seeing the different studios that Prince played in, performed in, held concerts in, and even recorded movies in. There were so many magical memories in that place. And still today, there are magical memories held at Paisley Park. Now, by creating this huge studio complex full of everything that Prince would ever need, he essentially taught us how significant and important it is to create a surrounding where you can thrive to create an energy and create a space where you are able to just wire in and do work and take your work, your craft to a whole new level. It was very interesting to see and think about because oftentimes we just show up at our cubicle and we think, oh, I'm inspired by this picture here and this picture there. But we don't actually think too in-depthly around how important it is to create an environment where our creativity can shine, where our work can be at an all-time high. And Prince made that happen. With Paisley Park. He even told in Rolling Stone back in 2014 that a day doesn't pass without him recording something at the studio. Every day, Prince was committed to recording, to building, to creating. And that is something that is oftentimes overlooked when it comes to creative genius, but it's something that I don't want us to overlook in this episode. When I spoke to Susan, she referenced this desire for Prince to record daily and have a great work ethic as somewhat of a religious thing that pushed him as both an employer and a creator, I wanted to pull that clip and share it with you. Check this out. He took his responsibilities as an employer, as a boss, very, very seriously. When, the, when he was 25, 24, 25 years old, he had a staff of people working for him, musicians and technical people and management. He, he, he recognized, now I'm employing people and, and I owe it to them to do my best. He, uh, he's well, well known that he was religious. And so uh, he believed that he had been gifted with a talent and that he would be doing a disservice to the God that he believed in if he didn't work as hard as humanly possible without complaint. I, you can hear from my voice, I'm suffering from a cold right now. And I was thinking about how when we were on tour, he never, the whole time I was with him, ever canceled a show. He was immortal. He'd get colds and flu like other people. He'd take Dayquil backstage and just be drinking that Dayquil. He'd get on that stage. He just believed if you have the chance to do this, you have to do it. That's your job. And he took that very seriously. I was proud to adopt that work ethic. It is said that Prince recorded enough unpublished material to release a record a year for the next 100 years. So could recording every single day at the studio kind of be the key secret to Prince's creative genius and excellence? Maybe, 
right? I mean, if you take that many shots, if you create that many songs all the time, every day, consistently creating, 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 you're going to eventually find a few hits. Prince's commitment to hard work cannot be underestimated. He believed in it, he lived it, and all those around him were forced to do the same. Basically, if you desire to reach Prince's level of creativity, I think you do need to be intentional about every single detail that is in your mind around your creative, your work, and focus on building things, launching things, creating things. Although it's difficult to figure out exactly how Prince works because he rarely did interviews on the topic and those who did interviews rarely talk about that specific element, I really wanted to go deeper and understand and hear how Prince worked. I had to look up the accounts of people that worked with him and after gathering insights from testimonies and interviews who were um, opportune to work with this genius, here's what I found. This was something that I thought was very interesting. It said, as a multi-vocalist, instrumentalist, songwriter, and producer, Prince doesn't really need anyone in the studio to record a song except an engineer. That was interesting to me. It was interesting because it makes sense. If you can do everything, then the only person that you would really need with you is that engineer. There are stories of how Prince would keep engineers in the studio so long that the poor engineers would get completely exhausted and would call for a replacement to finish the session. I watched an interview with two of his engineers, Peggy McCrary Blum and David Rivkin, where they described what it was like to work with Prince. Peggy mentioned how Prince worked all day to finish the song, finishing it sometimes at 3 a.m. He would schedule the next session for 6 p.m. However early the next morning, she would get a, a call at 9 a.m. and said, hey, can you show up? And she wasn't exactly happy, but she was exhausted and arrived. Prince told her that he had told himself that he wouldn't come in early unless he dreamed of a song. And sometimes he did. So Prince's inspiration came sometimes from his dreams and sometimes it just came from him working 16 hours straight. And just as he brushed his teeth before bed, that groove would hit him. Listen to this recollection from Susan Rogers. And uh, everything is, I'd go as fast as I could. One of the notes he wrote to me down at the bottom, he wrote, save my blood pressure, please. <laughs> Meaning the faster he wrote, the faster you work, the more I can get done. So ah, get everything going. So he would just come in and on something like that, a, a, a song that was piano-based, uh, it, it would often start with him on acoustic drums. And you know, this is the most amazing thing you'll ever see in the recording studio. You put the tape machine and record, he'd get on the drum kit, no headphones, because he's not playing to anything, no click or anything, no headphones. He's just on the drum kit, playing the track from top to bottom, keeping track of bars, of course, putting in all the breaks and all the fills, with the music in his head, completely top to bottom. How do you do that and stay in perfect time? He did. So you lay down the drums and, you know, we did dance music versions of so many of his records that it often didn't just go for three or four minutes. I mean, he'd sometimes play for six, seven minutes. Anyway, lay down the drums. He'd come into the room. I would have tuned the bass to have it all ready to go, hand him his bass. He'd sit down, do the bass part. He might next go upstairs and play the piano. We'd record that. And just the two of us, you know, just communicating back and forth, come down, do keyboard pads, do his guitar parts. Then there's a time when a record 
could go either way. It's either turning out really well, and it's going to probably make an appearance on your next album, or more often than not, it's okay, but it's not good enough for this next record. He might give it away to one of his uh, one of his protege bands. He might save it for a later album. But there's a moment where you kind of know what its destiny is. And when that moment comes, whether it ends up in the vault or it ends up on a record, now you kind of relax because now, now you know what it is. So that's when he'd get talkative. He'd usually call Eric Leeds, have Eric Leeds come down and put saxophone on. Or he'd call Wendy and Lisa and they'd come and add parts or backing vocals. So that's when you can kind of relax because, all right, you've just created something and you can see and hear what it is. Um, th- those long days would go yeah, 16, 20, 24 hours. That was not unusual. Then what would happen? is uh, he'd give you some last-minute instructions, the next thing he wanted done, do this or that, send this cassette to somebody or just whatever. Yikes. Then he'd go upstairs to get ready for bed, and I'd be wrapping up, and I'd hear those feet come down the stairs, and I thought, here we go. And sure enough, he'd come down the stairs, and sometimes he'd say, can we go around again? Meaning he had another song. And I remember once uh, he actually said, he apologized one time. He apologized. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I was brushing my teeth and this groove just came to me. I got to do it. And of course, you always say, uh, 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 sure, of course, of course. That's what we do. And you put up fresh tape and off you go. Go around again. That's what it takes. That's what it takes to sit at the top of an industry for a period of time. And I know some folks won't like this. I know some folks are going to hear this and say, oh, but you're talking about hustle. You're talking about the idea of working hard. You shouldn't be doing that. But folks, this is true. You want to get a glimpse into creative genius. Creative genius requires commitment of doing the work. The work that not everyone wants to do. The work that not everyone is willing to do. And as a result of that work, you might land yourself with the prize of being labeled a a creative genius. Or maybe if you do go down the path of music, you could achieve the triple crown. What? What's that? You'll see. We'll talk about the the triple crown in a second, but essentially it's the idea that there are plenty of talented people in the world. There are plenty of supremely talented people in the world, but the most talented people, the most talented musicians specifically, are able to make three key audiences extremely happy. Make three key audiences love them. And across the board, in most industries, these audiences can be found. Let Susan Rogers give you a glimpse into what that's all about. In your book, um, This Is What It Sounds Like, you described the triple crown, where you talked about how there's like critics providing fame, the public providing that sense of being loved, and musicians providing respect. There's no question that I think still, even to this day, Prince still has like the crown in many ways in mm-hmm. the work that he's done. And there's others that have like been able to like get to close to that. Could you talk a little bit around like that idea of the triple crown and yeah. um, how you would view the best path for a creative to even aspire and get there today um, if they wanted to? The triple crown is really rare and difficult to hit. It's like being an EGOT, you know, and if you're a young actor or something like that and you you plan, okay, I'm going to win these four major awards, stop. 
Stop. <laughs> yeah. Not that you can't do it, but why on earth would right. the first mountain you climb be Mount Everest? Exactly. Climb <laughs> a few little hills, work your right. way up to a few mountains, and you you get there. But right. you don't want to set yourself a task that's that's going to be impossibly difficult. You just right. might get there. But first you have to accomplish something. Show Mm -hmm. that you can actually be world-class great at a simple task and work your way up. So the Triple Crown refers to the different listening audiences there are for our musical work. There is uh, the general public. That's the listeners we think of most of the time. There's other musicians who don't listen with the same ears as the general public. They tend to be snobbish, and uh, they're listening for whether or not they or their friends could have done that. They're snobbish. I know these kids at Berkeley. That's just how they are. That's musicians. And uh, then the third audience is a really important one. That's the music critics and scholars, the writers, the journalists. They're listening for ideas whose time has come. And just like food critics and movie critics, they want to say, you guys, you got to see this movie. It's amazing. Or don't waste your money. Stay home. This this movie is no good. So they're all listening for something slightly different, which is why it's impossibly difficult right. nearly to please all three audiences. One record rarely does that. And certainly you don't do that throughout your entire career. Uh, the example I gave in the book of someone who did do that uh, for a long stretch of time, probably wore the crown the longest, was Duke Ellington. So right. Duke Ellington was the country's most popular band leader. Other critics revered him, and musicians just thought he was a god. So right. really, yep. really hard to do. Uh, right. Not not Michael Jackson, not the Beatles, uh, not Jimi Hendrix, who was a musician's musician, but didn't sell as many records as Eric Clapton. I mean, right. Different audiences. Prince wore the triple crown for uh, the Purple Rain album. He right. it was a, it was a number one hit record with the public. Other oh. musicians were like mad respect, and right. uh, and the critics and scholars uh, praised it uh, as a masterpiece. So yeah. he wore it for a short time. Short time, yeah. It's it is one of those things that like you. Even I think when I was reading it, I was like, this is applicable to so many different industries as well. Like in a lot of different spaces, there exists like that triple crown, whether you're thinking music, whether you're thinking art, you're thinking books, like that type of concept exists in all elements of creativity and creative outlets. Exactly. Um, Yeah. How do... I was going to say, and don't forget food. Food is such a good analogy with music because music is different from visual art and paintings. It's different from movies because you can consume it so rapidly. Three minutes, you consume a taco or you can consume a record in in just a few minutes. So no one would argue that McDonald's makes the greatest hamburgers in the world. McDonald's probably sells the greatest number of hamburgers in the world. Different audiences. A gourmet audience is going to be different from from the general public, which will be different from the food critics. And and we're okay with that. We we like living in a world where you can choose the thing you want to interact with based on what you need it to do for you. The public just wants a fun little record to give them an earworm and this sounds good and it's it's joyful but the critics are looking for art whose time has come and other musicians are looking for inspiration so Mm. they function differently so this part of the conversation validated for me the importance of truly knowing your audience 
validated for me that the understanding of your audience, whether it's a general public, a critic, or even your peers, is important. No matter what space you're in, no matter if you're a marketer, a creator, a builder, a writer, a musician, if you're pursuing excellence, it's probably worthwhile considering the things that can influence your success. Now, in today's world, where platforms run the day, I would throw in a fourth person that you need to satisfy, and that is the algorithms. And I know that this will stir up a lot of dialogue and debate across a lot of different industries. There's constantly debate around whether or not Mr. Beast and all of the the various influencers who have unlocked creative excellence in many ways on channels like YouTube are just gaming the system with their content um, by essentially satisfying the algorithms or, or not. The truth is, no matter which way you look at it, you need to understand the forces at B. You have to understand those who can influence your success. And you have to create things and tell stories and experiment in many ways, in ways that you can start to get insight into whether or not certain things will or will not work for your audience. And you can do it cognitively, with it fully aware, with intention, or passively. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people take the more passive approach. And yes, there is something to be said for just doing your own thing, creating for the sake of creating and hoping that it will stick. But if you're doing it for a commercial setting, if you're doing it with business intention, then doing it with intention of understanding your audience is probably the best place to start. I'll say I personally will never know whether or not Prince was ever intentionally thinking about these three groups, the triple crown, so to speak. But there is no doubt that Prince wanted to achieve excellence in his craft. They say the best way to understand an artist is to study their work. And taking that idea to heart, I decided that I was going to study the work of Prince and bring to life not only this episode, but to really immerse myself in understanding the details that went into the creation of Purple Rain, the album that essentially earned Prince the triple crown. When I talked to Dr. Susan Rogers about her experience working on Purple Rain, there's no question that there's a lot of key lessons that you can get from that dialogue. Someone who was in the room, someone who was actually a key contributor to one of the most magnificent pieces of work in the last few decades. Purple Rain, an album that spent a staggering 24 weeks at number one and has sold more than 20 million copies worldwide, remains not only Prince's key triple crown moment, but the most thrilling and cohesive artistic statement that he ever made. This is the story about how it happened. Let me take you back into time, a time that maybe you weren't even around for. It was August 3rd, 1983, and history was about to be made in the shape of Prince's career-defining sixth album, Purple Rain. You see, at this point in time, Prince had already made a name for himself in the industry. Prince was already well-known for his style, his swagger, his approach to music, and, in many ways, his ability to zig while everyone else zagged. He was known to do things that some would say were unconventional, do things that Others would say are a little bit too risque, but Prince stayed true to his own beliefs, his own thoughts, and his own perspective on what he needed to do to achieve that triple crown. Inside the First Avenue Club inside of Minneapolis, there was a sweaty congregation. Picture, 1,500 people, sweaty, 
staring across a low stage as an 18-year-old guitarist, Wendy Melvoin, makes her debut with hometown heroes Prince and the Revolution. With a purple jacket, ruffled collar, a little Richard Hare style, this magnetic five-foot-two soul preacher steps to the microphone and Prince flips the guitar behind his back gunslinger style, closes his eyes and sings, I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you any pain. And it was this moment, this moment, when a song would come to fruition in the eyes of many that would put the entire world under his groove. Prince and his band delivered an amazing performance that night, and every single individual in that room, in attendance, would forever remember that moment. Now, prior to making this album, Prince wasn't exactly considered by many to be exactly a team player. Stevie Wonder, Todd Rundgren, Paul McCartney, everyone realized that this Minneapolis multi-track whiz kid wrote, arranged, produced, and played almost every instrument on his first five albums, from 78 to 82, all alone. Prince was okay doing things alone. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, if you gave Prince a sound engineer, he could do it all. He was happy. He had no issues doing that. The minimalist pogo funk sound of those early records, typified by songs like When You Were Mine, I Want to Be Your Lover, and I Feel For You, was charmingly offbeat and original, but it was also insular. Prince must have sensed that if he was going to punch that higher floor on the elevator to global supremacy to get that actual triple crown, maybe he needed to rock. Maybe to rock, he needed to have a band. Now, as someone who wants to spend all day in the studio, Prince kind of requires that same level of dedication from pretty much anyone who would want to work with him. So being a member of Prince's band meant not only staying awake, but living up to your boss's sky-high standards of putting in the work. Hit-making R&B producer Jimmy Jam, who worked with Prince, revealed that they rehearsed up to seven hours a day. Seven hours a day, practicing variations of different songs, putting together different notes and tracks and songs to ultimately create something great. The other thing that he'd do is he'd make sure that you don't have a free hand while you're working with him. He was like a drill sergeant, they would say. If you're doing one thing, then you're working on another at the exact same time. They say that Prince taught people how to work just as much as he taught people how to do certain things with musical instruments. So back to the making of Purple Rain. You see, Prince realized he needed a band to make Purple Rain the hit that he wanted to, and he formed the revolution. This team consisted of Matt Dr. Fink on the synth, Brown Mark on bass, Bobby Rifkin on drums, Eric Leeds on sax, and guitarist Wendy Melvoin and keyboardist Lisa Coleman. The band's headquarters was a huge warehouse on Highway 7 in St. Louis Park, a suburb of Minneapolis. There, Prince built the soundstage and a recording studio that became the launching pad for all things Purple Rain. Now, with everything in place, he started to assemble the songs for his album. He opened himself up to a free-flowing trade of ideas from his band members and all those who were willing to contribute creatively to the process. This is a lesson worth taking notice of, folks. The idea of taking inspiration from those around you can be a very, very important part of creating something great. A lot of people will shut off ideas from the outside world. But what I believe is truly important 
is that you are able to have a filter on yourself to actually absorb and consume the ideas that come from those who have experience that is worth listening to. For the first time, Prince changed his approach to record making, allowing his bandmates to contribute creatively, and the result was the Triple Crown. Sure, the album was a real mixture from different people, but Prince was at its core, at its essence, the melody maker and the heart and soul that made up the entire thing. Prince never took any lyrical content from the people that he worked with on this album. He still was the leading lyricist, and he was still the leading creative genius behind it. When it came to the songwriting of this track, the production style, and the ethos, it really did imprint generations of artists to come. From George Michael to Justin Timberlake to Lady Gaga and Beyonce, there's no question that Prince's influence from Purple Rain has transcended decades and generation after generation. He sold out arenas. He won several awards. He wrote his name on the sand of time, and that's why we still talk about him years after his death. Prince created something great with Purple Rain. Prince created a career worth talking about with his entire being. Now, let me state and reiterate a point that I made earlier around Prince not being like most people because I think it's fair to say that most of us will never live up to Prince's bar of excellence and creativity. And that's okay. But there's a ton that we can learn from Prince and the things that we can use from hearing his story that we can take inspiration from and apply to our own work. When speaking with Susan, she talked about how unlearning Prince was actually necessary for her to be able to go on and work with other great artists. Here's that clip. Check it out. One of my favorite songs of his that I love more than anything is Condition of the Heart on the Around the World in the Day album. Got a long, long intro. All these right. different timbres coming in and out. He did all that, just one instrument after the other, as if he could hear the whole song in his head. Right. That's that's unheard of. I mean, you, you you don't see that in the in the in the normal world. The normal world, I should say, of some really brilliant people. Right. Let me let me please say. Um, back to Dylan Dresdow and saying you had to unlearn Prince. Now, Dylan had worked with some really big artists before he joined Prince, so he knew how normal people made records. I did not. So I, um, for me, for Wendy and Lisa, um, Prince was our first real professional experience. So when I left Prince, I now am entering the world of other record makers, and I'm learning how normal people do this. And truly, it seemed outrageously slow. I could could not believe we would spend the whole day. I'm not exaggerating. A whole day to get one guitar part. Prince would get a whole record in one day. So at first, I had to overcome that impression that, wow, these people are just not as creative or they're just not as fast or they're just not as decisive. I was wrong. Very creative. They're very decisive. They're using the studio for trial and error. They're revising their drafts. All the great writers, great writers, authors, they revise their drafts. They, they, they do a first draft, second, a third, and fourth, whether they're writing for the screen or television, mm. writing novels. It's what we do. Um, right. Most people aren't afraid of that, but Prince had zero interest in that. He wanted to get it right the first time and only time. What is the thing that they 
don't understand about Prince that made Prince Prince? Quite a quite a lot of things. Um, we talk about the distinction between art and craft. Art is original thought, your ideas, your creativity. Craft is your ability to make manifest the things that you think of. And wrapped up, your art and your craft are wrapped up in um, your psyche, your capacity to focus, self-discipline, tune out distractions, work when you're not in the mood to work, perform a really happy song when you're feeling sad, all those things. So all that has to come together. Prince would be coming up in the same clothes he had worn the night before, and he'd hand you a cassette and say, check out what I did last night. So this kid, not only was he so facile on instruments that he could move from drums to bass to keys to guitars to vocals, doing everything himself. I mean, he had, he had tremendous technical skill, but he coupled, coupled the craft with tremendous artistic creativity. That's a potent package. Now nestle that in the psychological package of someone who had focus, self-discipline, a work ethic, an overarching plan. He was happy to look down the road and see where he wanted to be in a few years. He just was all these uh, amazing things all coming together to forge an almost perfect musical superstar. Craft and art. I always hear the quote, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work. So if you have that talent, or at least you have the aspirations for it, can you create it yourself or does it start at a very young age? Does it start with you kind of figuring out whether or not this is more of a nature thing or nurture thing? I wanted to find this out too. So I asked Dr. Susan Rogers where hypercreativity comes from and this is what she shared. Do you think it's nature or nurture in terms of hypercreative? I'm uh, pretty sure it's nature. I think... Mm. Um, I, I don't know what causes those circuits to form in infancy and what's responsible for those leaky faucets, the, the broken gates there. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. Uh, but in a lot of cases, we're born into this world. We're sampling sights and sounds and smells and tastes and textures. And our brain is uh, pruning any connections that it says, well, I don't need this. This isn't important. Right. And it's making stronger connections with um, those kinds of stimuli that you do need. So right. if in your world, let's say your family goes bowling a lot. I don't know why I thought right. of bowling. But let's right. say they go bowling. Let's do it. <laughs> and they, yeah. And they take the infant along. The baby's going to learn really fast mm. the sound of that bowling ball and those pins striking and, and baby's brain is going to recognize this is something the family's right. really into. This is right. something that's important in my world. But let's say you never go water skiing. So you don't hear those sounds. You're going right. to, uh, you're not going to form such strong connections there. Our brains right. are constantly organizing themselves based on what we're exposed to. So in the world of creativity, a lot of people oftentimes throw around this idea of like getting a creative block um, and just like hitting a wall, not being able to create anything. From your description as a prince, like did prince run into creative blocks that you ever witnessed? Like, was that a thing? 
Oh yeah. Oh okay. yes. You can only but, be on. <laughs> yeah, you can only be on output for so long. At some point, you have to be on input. And he was remarkable that he could spend an hour doing some non-musical thing and get inspired. The slightest little thing could inspire him. I ran out uh, to, uh, we were working at home and I needed to run out to the market. I think I had to get him something. And uh, I came back, the paper bag, and in that paper bag, I had the book that I was reading because when he'd do his vocals all by himself, I'd go in the next room and just read a book until he was ready for me. So I I was reading, (laughs) of all things, Goethe's Faust, Bargain with the Devil. Nice. <laughs> got into me, who knows? But anyway, I'm reading Faust. And I had a package of um, Tic Tacs, wintergreen, right. winter, wintergreen Tic Tacs. And uh, he finished his vocal. I went into the control room. He came out. I could kind of hear him rummaging around in that bag. And uh, next thing I knew, he wrote the song Splash. And uh, I just remember the line in it, cherry blue, winter green. And I, I seem to remember there was another lyric right around that same time that it said something about a, a, a Faustian bargain or something like that. Um, right. Just the slightest little thing would right. inspire him. Uh, Susan Moonsey, former girlfriend, took him roller skating one day. She, she right. just insisted, you've got to get out of the studio. Let's go down to the lake and let's let's roller skate. And uh, he, right. came, he came back so happy and wrote the song Strollin' and uh, right. got a lot of inspiration from that. Right. Yeah, but he would, I guess your question was uh, hitting the writer's block. And yeah, of course, he would just dry up. When he Mm. did, we would pull from the vault older stuff that he had done, put up the tape just to see, is there there anything there? Right. And sometimes there wasn't. Sometimes Mm. he'd pull something from the vault and and he'd get inspired just by listening to it and he'd take the song in a new direction. Sometimes he'd just do some really bad art. Uh, There's some crap that we recorded that is not good. Uh, That's (laughs) fair. Yeah, yeah. Just a derivative and imitative of himself and belonged in the vault. For many people, creative blocks are like the most annoying, obnoxious thing that can happen to you when you're trying to get into a state of flow and create things that you believe the world will find value in. But even Prince hit creative blocks. Even Prince, someone who is a hyper-creative, someone who Dr. Susan Rogers explained was a hyper-creative, someone who was more nature in the creative sense than nurture, they too hit creative roadblocks. How does the rest of us even get through that? How do the rest of us shake a creative block? Well, I think you have to still rely on the same principles that Prince did. Even amidst a creative roadblock, you need to be able to put your headphones on, wire in, and do the work. It's that simple. It might sound like a basic idea. It might sound like, oh, that's not real good advice. I need to be told that I need to jump in a cold shower. I need to be told that I need to drink a certain type of tea or I need to try this certain tool or whatever it may be. These are all of the things that we want to say. These are all of the things that we want to read and consume online. And these are the threads that people write on X that get tons and tons of shares. But in reality, the best approach is just like Prince. You just do it anyway. You create anyway. You build anyway. You throw it out afterwards, but at the end of the day, you go through the motions of creating for the sake of creating because that is what you are signing up to do as a creative. You create things. This is what drove me so insane about the marketing and advertising industry when I first got into it. 
I can remember working with with creatives, as they were described, designers, copywriters, creative directors, and they would spend hours on hours on hours in a boardroom talking about ideas and stories and messages without actually creating anything. No campaigns just came to life. They would just be floating, waiting for ideas to hit them. Instead of spending time just shipping ideas, launching ideas, and seeing what would resonate with their audience. Create things, folks. If you want to get through a creative roadblock, grab the thing that you use to create, whether it's a keyboard, a piano, uh, your laptop, your microphone, a video recorder, a a camera, whatever it is, and start to create. Because when that creative block hits you, you need to be able to have gone through it so many times that you can go one of two ways. You can either go down a path where you are forcing yourself to create again something new, or you can go back into the archive. Go back into the archive of all those things that you created even when you had a creative roadblock and say, what is in here that might be halfway there, that might be half good, that I might be able to twist and tweak a little bit to get it to excellence. This is all stemming from a simple idea, knowing where you want to go and being focused on getting there. Something else that Prince truly understood. You mentioned Prince had really great ability to focus as well as the ability to kind of just have that flow of creativity. Could you talk a little bit around the combination of those two things and how they're related? Focus and creativity and how they result in like great outcomes, like the ability to focus and allow the mind to wander to come up with the flow and great end result. Could you just talk a little bit around like the relationship between the two things? Yeah. Um, Scholars of creativity note that what what defines creativity is at, at least three points. And I can't for the life of me, remember what the third point is, but I mentioned the first two earlier. One is originality, and the second is usefulness. If you're going to make something, you have to have a capacity to understand who it's going to work for, how it's going to work when it goes out there in the world. Does this Is this idea something that deserves to be made, or is this just a really bad idea? Um, right. I don't know how that relates to focus so much, but highly creative people do have a capacity to tune out a certain percentage of irrelevant ideas and to keep revising their work in progress until it meets the standard that they're imagining in their mind. Uh, Other people um, get started on a creative idea and because they love the act of creation so much, they don't really have a a strong sense of follow through. They will abandon projects before they're really done because often they'll lose this notion of what's good about it or this notion of who's this going to be useful to. Right. I'm thinking of a song um, the Prince recorded. It's called I Am Five. He recorded it before I joined him. Lyrically, it's a little bit... um, risque and could even be offensive to some people. I am five. Uh, it was it was way out of left field for him. It wasn't typical of what he normally did when they were considering whether or not to include it on a, a box set of stuff from the vault. I was in favor of releasing it because I thought it would show him who he is, but others uh, 
were smarter and they recognized, no, we don't want to include this because it wasn't consistent with the image of music that Prince put out there in the world. So you have to have a sense of your own artistic identity so that you can make things that serve that identity. An important point to consider while we're on this topic is that in the case of Prince, any artist, Prince music was only a portion of the music of his life. Mm. Of his entire musical life, there was Prince music, the time music, Sheila E., right. Vanity Six, and that's True. the same for all artists. Sometimes you'll, you just have a hankering to adopt an alternative identity so that right. you can express another aspect of your artistry. Most of the time, we can't get away with that. We pick a lane and we kind of have to stay in it. Even if our creativity could go to other places, we got to stay in our lane for the consistency and the usefulness of the product. Though creativity and sometimes is a quite spontaneous act, there's a high level of discipline and focus required to continue a project even when creativity doesn't feel like it's at your fingertips. There's even more discipline that is required to finish a project, a product, whatever it might be, when you realize that this thing that you're creating is bigger than yourself. So if you're a person that easily gets distracted with social media, maybe you have to think about setting up a workstation or a workspace that will ultimately set you up to be able to create consistently at a high level, right? Maybe you need to create your own Paisley Park. Or better yet, maybe you need to force yourself to create even when you're not in the mood. Or maybe you need to level up your standards on what it means to create with excellence. Maybe you need to set a higher standard for yourself and hold yourself to a higher bar on what you allow to distract you and how frequent you are going to create. At the end of the day, there are a few key lessons that I took from this episode of diving deeper into the wonderful world of prints. I learned that consistency truly is the key. I learned that craft plus art equals superstardom. And I realized that not everyone is built the same. Staying focused and disciplined in our work, pushing ourselves to create something unique and understanding the audiences that we can influence and the surroundings that we have around us, both from a people standpoint and an environment standpoint and the way that it can influence us and influence our work is so important. I hope that you'll use this episode to launch pad you into creating something great. I'm Ross Simmons, thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the internet. If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down.